How would you respond to the most awkward dinner party ever? Have any of you been to an awkward dinner before? An awkward, I, I'm using the word awkward. It's, it's, it's a tremendous example of how the English language evolves, right? Um, the word awkward, uh, just in its original form, just simply meant turn the wrong way around, upside down. Awkward meant something difficult to do. Kids these days, man. Awkward now just means socially uncomfortable or embarrassing, and I'm using it in that sense tonight. What happens when you go to a really awkward dinner party? Some people are really good in those moments. They know exactly what to say to kind of break the ice a little bit. Um, other people are not as gifted uh, in that front. Uh, myself, um, among them, uh, at times. I also have to, I also have to pick on my, my friend Trent here. Um, Trent, are you ready for this? We, we were in the car um, one night and we were going to drop off Miss Sheila. Many of you remember dear Miss Sheila, who has since gone on to be with the Lord. And uh, she was going, we were dropping her off and then we were going for dinner um, somewhere, and Trent was going to come along. But Miss Sheila recognized that sometimes Trent would, would get to go out to dinner and she would get dropped off. And so we told Trent, Trent, don't, do not raise the issue of whether we're going out after. We just, we're just going to keep quiet about it. It's not going to be a big deal. We're just going to be very informal about it un until Miss um, Sheila asked straight out whether we were going out afterward, and uh, Trent, not remembering our direction, just immediately blurted out, yes. And suddenly there was a very awkward silence in the car. I mean awkward. Until the next word we heard, as Tabitha and Abby, who were in the car, can attest, Trent simply said, whoops. That was, uh, that was only heightened uh, the awkwardness other than us just breaking out in uproarious laughter. Like I said, I can't pick on uh, my ward, Trent, um, because I'm not so great either. In fact, um, do any of you who are married know, am I, are we the only ones who sometimes go out on a date and sometimes it seems like conversation is not flowing as freely as it does at, at, at other times? I will, I will admit to being in that camp, and Tabitha laughs at me because my go-to when it's in that time is, so nice weather we have outside, huh? And it's just become a running joke for us right now uh, that when we don't know what to say, that's the icebreaker. Well, why do I start with awkward dinner parties? Because we are at, I think, the most awkward dinner party in all the Bible. And I'm going to try to prove it to you just very briefly. The most awkward dinner party in the Bible. Now, it's an awkward dinner party, if you'll look at Luke chapter 14, based on the host. The host is likely a very influential Pharisee who has invited Jesus to dinner. Now, he didn't do it because he had a, a kind of curious interest in Jesus in embracing him and hearing more about him as potential Messiah and Lord. No. What does chapter 14 say? They watched him. They watched him. Why? They were looking for ways to trip him up. They were looking for ways to try to catch him in a trap and prove that he was not truly the wonderful teacher that people were believing him to be. So the host made it awkward, but even more than that, the guest made it awkward. Let's just be honest. 
Jesus was one of those who, when there was an opportunity to lessen social discomfort or an opportunity to dive straight in, he liked to dive straight in. He just took it head on. Now, notice even the very first story in chapter 14. The entire 24 verses that Calvin Todd read for us tonight, that's one dinner party. Okay? That's one dinner party. In the first few verses of chapter 14, up until verse 6, Jesus sees that there's a man there who has dropsy. I have no idea what dropsy is, other than that I understand that it's something you have an, an unusual accumulation of fluid in certain parts of your body. And it is a condition that Luke, a physician, was able to identify clearly. And Jesus sees this man, and they're watching him. Are you going to heal him? Because it's the Sabbath day. And Jesus could have avoided discomfort by simply not healing, but he knew God wanted him to heal. And so right on the Sabbath day, right in front of him, right at the dinner party, he heals this man. And then, notice what happens. He has asked them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. They were quiet. In other words, awkward dinner parties have really awkward silences, don't they? Jesus looks at this dinner party and he says, hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And everyone just looks at him. Awkward. And he heals him. And then he corrects him. He says, which of you has an animal and you take it out and lead it away on the Sabbath day if it's fallen into a pit? You pull him out of the, you pull him out of the pit. You work. What about this person who's got the dropsy? Well, notice then what happens in verse 7. He puts forth a parable to those which were bidden how, when, they, when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms. Now, notice what's happening. It's a dinner party, and everyone's trying to find the right table to sit at. They want to, like you might say at a wedding, want to be up closest to the head table, where the most important guy was, where the host was. And he, Jesus just watched these people coming into a dinner party. So after confronting them, and after blatantly violating what they wanted to see happen, now Jesus turns it on and says, and you know what, by the way, I was watching you guys come in here, and I noticed that you all started trying to walk up to find the best seat in the house. And let me tell you, that's not right. He's just getting more popular by the second at this dinner party. So he's told them, he's given them instruction on how to actually attend this dinner party. And then it gets even worse. Look at verse 12. Then said he also to him that bade him, or that invited him. So he's healed, offending everybody. Then he's identified the main group of people who are looking to sit at the head table and he corrected them. And then he turns to the guy who invited him. It's his house. And he says, and I've got something to say to you too. Look what he says. When you make a dinner or a supper, call not, don't call your friends or your brethren, your, your immediate family. Neither your kinsmen, your extended family, nor your rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee or invite thee again and a recompense or a repayment be made you. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying, don't call the ones that are going to invite you back. Now, at that point, I promise you, I promise you, just knowing human nature, everybody started looking around the room. Family, family, rich neighbor, family, family, Friend, friend, rich neighbor, every single one of them. Jesus is upbraiding the guy who invited him 
to the dinner and notice. But when you make a feast called the poor, the maimed, the physically disabled, the lame, those disabled in the legs, unable to walk, the blind. And I promise you, friends, when they looked around for one of those people, there wasn't one of them. There wasn't one of them at that, that, that feast. And listen to what Jesus says. And thou shalt be blessed. You will be blessed if that's the case. For they cannot recompense thee. They can't pay you back. For thou, you will be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. You will be recompensed, repaid by God himself. Now about three and a half years ago, I looked it up. I preached a message on this passage entitled a, titled, a God, a God-like guest list. You can go look it up. And I just want to challenge you, church. Who do you invite over to dinner? Who do you, who do I invite over for dinner? Let's make sure our hospitality follows Jesus' words. He's not saying never invite your family over, never have family gatherings. That's not what he's saying. He is talking about something, how we focus on the kinds of hospitality we show to others. Now, friends, I just want to say at this point, this is the most awkward dinner party ever. You can cut the silence with a knife. And then you know what happens? I'll tell you what someone does. It's time to clear the air. I can just see this. I, I just, I can see this with my mind's eye. Could I be wrong? I could be wrong. You're, you're clever people. You can decide whether I'm wrong. But look at what comes next. And when one of them that sat at meat, sat at the table with them, heard these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, I can promise you what's going on right here. It is so awkward. It is so uncomfortable. And someone says, well, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Do you know that I sense it's going on? It would be like someone raising a toast. Well, can we all agree to this? It's a good thing to be eating in the kingdom of God together. Like that, we can agree on that, right, Jesus? Right, Pharisee? Right, everybody? Oh, friends, Jesus isn't done yet. The dinner party gets even more awkward. Because Jesus is going to tell them a story that directly contradicts everything they understood about what it meant to be in the kingdom of God. And what he was going to tell this perhaps well-meaning gentleman who said, can't we just all agree that we're all in the kingdom of God and get along here? Jesus had to inform him, hey, buddy, the big question is whether you're even going to be in the kingdom of God, whether you're even going to get a place at that table. I want to look tonight at this story at the most awkward dinner party ever because tonight, really, what I want to ask you is, do you have a spot at the table? in the kingdom of God? And if you're here tonight and you know that you do, you know that you do, what are you going to do about it next? The title of the message today is simply The Greatest Invitation. The Greatest Invitation. The invitation that is made to a glorious feast. A glorious feast in the kingdom of God that has a question for all of us. We're going to break this into three parts as we often do. We're going to start with a story that Jesus tells. We're just going to look very simply at the story that he tells. And kids, there is going to be a trivia time afterward. And I'm going to be expecting a lot from you because this is a very simple story. You're just going to need to listen up 
And we're going to do this really well tonight. Secondly, we're going to talk about a statement, the statement that Jesus was making to this Pharisee. And third, we're going to ask its significance for our own lives. How does this apply to our own lives? Let's start with the story. And as we always do, we want to be grounded completely in the text, completely in the Bible. You didn't come here to hear my words. You didn't come here to me hear simply my thoughts. The only value that I have in this pulpit is the extent to which I am accurately taking this word of God and telling what it means and helping us apply it to our own lives. So let's look at the Bible together tonight. If you have your Bible and you open it to Luke 14, you might have a physical copy, you might have it on your phone or your tablet, wherever it is, let's be looking all together at the word tonight so you can be testing what I say. Notice, first of all, here in this story, there's an invitation. And I want us to notice here, starting in verse 16. Remember, someone has just said this religious triviality. Hey, blessed is everyone that eats bread, everyone that is invited to the feast in the kingdom of God. He was, it was a statement about a future messianic dinner. You said, where would anyone have gotten that idea? Well, in Isaiah 25... And in other Old Testament passages, the Old Testament prophets depicted a day coming in which there would be a great feast, in which the Messiah would bring about the peace and deliverance of Israel, and there would be a great feast for the people of God. Is there a New Testament version of that? A New Testament fulfillment of that? You folks are really quiet tonight. Is there a New Testament fulfillment of that? Yes, there is. What do we call it? The marriage supper of the Lamb. You can read about it in Revelation. It is going to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus, when he comes to restore his reign on earth, and when we are then gathered together, all of the people of God, when Satan has been put down, we will gather together as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so here, this is something the Israelites of Jesus' day were waiting for. They were expecting this feast, this gathering together. And Jesus is going to tell them a story. He says, a certain man made a great supper. It didn't mean he was the cook, okay? This was the rich guy who was funding it. He made a great supper, and he bade, or he invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, to them that were invited, come, for all things are now ready. Now we need to understand first century Judy, um, uh, uh, Jewry to understand what's going on here. In Jesus' day, the dinner gatherings were the social events of the entire social calendar. These kind of dinners could be for weddings, they could be for other just harvest celebrations, and they were the hopping social events. These were the events that you did not turn down an invitation to. These were the things you looked forward to, the big community event of the year. So this great man is inviting people to this great supper, his neighbors, his community, his friends. He's gathering them. And what would happen in that day is that you would invite someone, almost like a save the date. But then it would take someone, you would, it would take you a while to actually put the supper together. 
we didn't have the kind of fast cooking methods always that we had. They involved great preparation. So you'd say, hey, I've got a dinner coming, and you're invited. And then what would happen? And then perhaps a day or two days or a week or two weeks later, you'd send your servant back out. They didn't have telephones. They didn't have text messages. They didn't have emails. They went out back up, and they said, dinner's ready. Come now. Save the date. It's ready. So the idea here is that someone, the people have been invited. Save the date. They didn't say, oh, sorry, I'm busy. No, nah, sorry, I don't want to come. They got to save the date, and then the servant goes back out and says, it's ready, come in, it's time to eat. And notice what is the response to this invitation. It is rejected. Now, friends, this would have likely been astonishing to the Pharisees that were listening to this story. You didn't, you didn't reject these invitations. But they did. And listen to this, what is so crazy. Look at the excuses they made. Will you notice with me? And they all, it says in verse, in verse 18, they all with one consent began to make excuses. That means they just all, they all uniformly started making excuses. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground. I bought land and I must needs go. I must go and see it. I pray thee, please have me excused. Now, friends, I want you to think about that excuse for a minute. Would you register that as a good excuse or a lame excuse? Utterly, horrifically lame. It's dinner time. The sun is probably going down. You just bought a piece of land without looking at it? Sight unseen? And as it, the sun is going down, now is the time when you skip the dinner party and you run to look at this land. It's probably going to be too dark to really see it very long anyway. That's a really what we would call dumb excuse. I think this is the point. Look at the second excuse. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. Now, from my understanding, five yoke of oxen was what wealthy people bought. That was a significant investment. I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them or test them. I pray thee, have me excused. Now let me ask you, is that a good excuse or a lame excuse? You're telling me you bought five yoke of oxen without testing them beforehand? And now after purchasing them, now you're going to go test them? And that can't wait long enough for you to go to the social event of the year? Again, the Pharisees must have been looking at this and saying, this is nuts. This would not have happened, Jesus. The third excuse is the best, okay? The third excuse is the absolute best. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Okay, guys, tread carefully here. Is this a good excuse or a lame excuse? Be careful. Be careful, husbands. Now, you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 20, perhaps, the Old Testament law said if you get married, you don't have to go fight in battle for a year. You get to stay home with your wife. You don't have to go and risk life. But that's not a dinner party. Okay? I mean, I, I chalk this up in the lame category and Tabitha saying nothing about our date nights, okay? Sweetie, nothing about our date nights. But I chalk that up in the lame category. Three excuses, three fairly ridiculous ones all to avoid the greatest social event of the year. Now, here's the absolute truth about excuses. As a general rule, excuses only reveal your lack of desire. That's really what's often going on in an excuse. Have you ever seen this with someone? 
Say, can we go out for dinner? I want to go out for dinner with you. And they say, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't tonight. I've got other plans. Oh, don't worry about it. What about tomorrow? Oh, I'm sorry. I have to get to bed early tomorrow night. I'm not able to make it. Oh, that's fine. I've got flexibility at work. Let's do 4.30. You'll be back in no problem. Oh, you know, I just remembered. What, what do you realize about those lame excuses as you knock down every one of them? They just don't want to go. There's something else that they are valuing more than that dinner. And ultimately, what's going on here? They just didn't value the invitation. That's what's going on. They didn't value it. They valued other things. Maybe they valued their oxen. Maybe they valued their land. Maybe they valued their early relationship or their marriage. But whatever it was, they simply didn't value the event. And so they made up excuses to avoid it. Now notice what happens next in this very simple story. The invitees were replaced. Do you see that? Keep on going with me. So that servant came and showed his Lord, this great man, these things. Then the master of the house, being angry. Now, do you understand now why he was angry? He knew these excuses were bad. He knew his invitation was being devalued. He was upset because he was being insulted. It was offensive that these people would choose these ridiculous excuses over his elaborate dinner. Notice what he does. He's angry. And what does he say? He says to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither, bring in here the poor and the maimed and the halt or the lame and the blind. Friends, where have we seen those before? Where did we see that? Those were the same categories Jesus said when you fill out your dinner party. You invite those people. In other words, God is not asking us to exercise hospitality in any different way than he has in the gospel. That's who he called in to his house. And notice verse 22. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded. In other words, we've invited in the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind, and yet there is room. There's still room in the house. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden or that were invited shall taste of my supper. What is going on here? You need to see what's really happening. He sends his servant out into the city, the city limits. And he brings out those who are by the street corners, those who are perhaps begging, those who are the poor off in the corners, in the dingy, dark spaces of the city. He's inviting them to come in. And then what happens? There's still room. So what does he do? What are the highways and hedges? Those are the places outside the city. Those are the places out in the fields where not as many people gather. It's out really along the wayside. The highways were the roads connecting towns. They were dangerous places. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan took place on a road between Jerusalem and Jericho. These were difficult roads. These were difficult places. But what does the master say? He says, I'm not having a half-empty feast. 
I don't care what these people who are making excuses say. I am having a full house, even if it means going out and compelling them. Compelling them why? Do you think he meant compel them because they've got their own excuses and you've just got to drag them by the ear and yank them into my house? I don't think that's what he meant at all. Why did he say go and invite, go and call them in, and then for those in the highways and hedges, compel them to come in? Do you know why? Because the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind and those in the highways and hedges, they would have known they weren't supposed to go to the dinner. They weren't invited to those dinners. You mean the rich guy's having a dinner? Oh, I hope he has a good time with his rich little friends. We don't get invited to those dinners. They were compelling them to come in because they needed to convince them that the offer was for them. They needed to convince them, no, my master really wants you to come and I'll take you by the hand and I'll lead you there myself to prove it to you. He wants you there. And so he compelled them to come in that his house may be full. Friends, it's a very simple story. His house was full for his feast. Notice secondly then, the statement that he was making to the Pharisees. Will you look with me again at verse number 24? We can't see Jesus' eyes here. We can't hear his tone of voice. But can I suggest to you, it doesn't take a flight of imagination to get an idea. For I say unto you, that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Don't you think that Jesus picked up his eyes? Did he look at the head, head at the table? Did he look at the guy who had said that awkward statement, blessed are those who shall take, eat meat in the kingdom of God? Did he look him right in the eye? Did he slow his words down? And did he say, for I say unto you, that none, Think he emphasized that word? That none of those men which were bidden shall taste of, do you think he said my, my feast? Oh, friends, Jesus didn't explain anything. Do you notice that? It ends there. The story ends there. But he said everything he needed to say. This is what he was saying to them. The picture here is obvious, and it would have been obvious, I think, to those first century Jews. The picture was simply this. The original invitees were the Jewish people, and particularly those Pharisees. They were the people of promise. They were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were the people of the covenant. They had the sign of circumcision. They were the ones who were in the blessing of God in their own minds and hearts. That's why this man said, blessed are those who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God because he was looking at everyone in that group and saying, that's us. We're in. We are are blessed and Jesus turns it around and says don't you understand don't you understand that none of those who were bidden are going to eat of the feast oh my 
Jesus is speaking directly to Pharisees who in their own religious zeal and misguided thinking and interpretation of Scripture and above all their own pride, they were rejecting the invitation of God to the feast in, uh, in, for their own selfish pursuits. For their own selfish pursuits. Friends, who's the servant in this story who's coming to invite them? Who's the servant? I think it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who came from the God's house to earth to say it's ready. Do you remember what we learned in Mark recently? What did Jesus come preaching in the Gospel of Mark? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. I'm inviting you. I'm inviting you in. I'm inviting you into dinner. Come and feast. Come and partake. And what did they say? They all, those religious leaders, nearly without exception, they began to make excuse. They rejected the invitation. And now Jesus is looking at them and telling them the most obvious story to say, guys, don't you see? You're not getting in unless you accept the invitation. And then it would have only gotten more offensive from there. Because then he said, who's getting invited in? The poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Who are those people? The blessed ones? No, to the Israelites, those were the cursed ones. You remember even Jesus' disciples looked at a man who was born blind and said, did this man sin or did his parents sin that he was born blind? And Jesus' answer is, you're looking at this all the wrong way. No one sinned. This isn't about a curse. These people looked at these others, these, these outcasts, as being the cursed ones as opposed to us blessed ones. And Jesus turns the whole thing around on them and says, no, they are the blessed ones. Now, was he only talking about physical blindness, physical disability? No, I don't believe so. It's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those that are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Ultimately, Jesus is talking about the kind of poverty of spirit, ultimately the kind of humility and brokenness and meekness before God that humbles ourselves to accept the invitation that he has made. But it only gets more radical from there. When Jesus then says that man sent them out into the highways and hedges, the highways and byways to bring them in, who's he talking about? Jews? Oh, I think they would have seen clearly he's talking about Gentiles. How offensive. Jesus is saying, you know who's going to end up the blessed ones in the kingdom of God? Not you children of Abraham who reject the invitation. The Gentiles are going to come in. Do you know why I think this was, is true? In Luke chapter 4 earlier, and we won't turn to it just for time's sake, but you can look at verse 25 to 28. Luke 4 and verse 25 to 28. Jesus, when he has opened the scriptures in the synagogue, found that passage in Isaiah where it's prophesying about himself. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to exercise this messianic prophecy. What does he say to them? He says, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And then he cites two Old Testament examples. He cites Elijah, and he cites Elisha. And do you know what he tells them? He says, Elijah, there were plenty, there were plenty of lepers in, in Elisha's day, but who did he go to? Naaman, a Syrian. And there were plenty widows in Elijah's day. Who did he go to? A Gentile. And do you know what those Jews did? They chased him out, and they tried to push him off a hill to kill him. 
that was so offensive to suggest that the Gentiles might have privileges before God that they didn't, they wanted to kill him. And now Jesus is looking at these Pharisees dead in the eye at the most awkward dinner party ever. And he says, you know what's going to happen? God's sending people out into the highways and hedges to bring in the Gentiles to eat at the feast of God's kingdom, and you're going to be excluded. Whoa. Whoa. Friends, it didn't get any less awkward from there, did it? Jesus had a message to say to them loud and clear. And ultimately, what I want to suggest to you tonight, friends, is that Jesus has a message loud and clear to you tonight. And he has a message that's loud and clear to me tonight, too. I want to talk lastly, before we close here, about the significance. The significance. I've told you all before of a preacher that had a wonderful example for me to follow. He said, when you read a story in the Bible, ask where you are in the story. Ask where you are in the story. Which character are you? Where, where is God speaking to you in that story? I want to ask you tonight, where are you in this parable? I want to just put before you two proposals here for where a lot of people have seen them in the, themselves in this story. I'll tell you one thing where people have seen themselves in the story is they see themselves as the servant. We're the ones going out into the streets and lanes of the city. We're the ones going out into the highways and hedges and we're compelling people to come in to the feast. Some people have actually taken that very literally when they said compel them to come in. Do you know actually St. Augustine a man who did much good for the kingdom of God in many ways. Do you know St. Augustine relied on that passage to believe, to actually justify religious persecution? To actually believe that we are called to compel by force people to enter the Christian church. He actually, you can see it in letter number 93 to a man named Vincentius. I was actually looking, I was actually reading it. And he justifies this idea as William Barclay, the commentator, says, he says this has been used as, quote, defense of the Inquisition, the thumbscrew, the rack, the threat of death and imprisonment, the campaigns against the heretics, which Barclay calls the shame of Christianity. Do we agree? Do we see ourselves in the story to exercise religious persecution, including as the magistrate, to make sure people come into this church? No. No. You know why it's very simple? Paul told the Corinthians, he says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And whenever we try to use political power, whenever we try to use persecution or force or physical compulsion to make someone accept the spiritual things of God, we are not doing anything to advance the kingdom because only those things are spiritually discerned. They are not discerned by force. They are not discerned by compulsion. They are discerned by the Spirit's work in our hearts. So we reject that. We don't see ourselves there. Others have seen themselves, though, also as the servants in a different way. The idea of this passage is we go out into the streets and lanes of the city, we go out into the highways and hedges, and we compel them to come in to his house. But do you know what? We interpret his house as a church building. Compel them to come in to God's house. You know, friends, the real challenge with using the, this passage in that way is it completely goes against 
what God teaches about his house in the New Testament? There is no such thing as the house of God in the New Testament. This building is not the house of God. God does not reside here during the week. There is no particular significance to what even we call the sanctuary here, other than that it's a place that is particularly suited for us to meet and worship. This place is no more sanctified in any way than your living room would be when you gather together to worship God together. There simply is no house of God. In fact, you say, well, didn't Paul say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Friend, that word in the Greek that is translated house can either be used as a building or of a household. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, when, when, when Paul says to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy... He wasn't talking about a building getting saved. He was talking about a household. A family. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is that you may know how to conduct yourself in and among the household of God. Not in a building. Because there is no house of God. Friends, we do not compel people to come to a building. What is going on in this passage is that Jesus is speaking of a kind of drawing power. A, a compelling power that is bringing people into the kingdom of God that is bringing them in to accept the invitation to receive God's grace in his gift of salvation and accept it for themselves. And so therefore, my question for you is, where do you see yourself in the story? If you jump immediately to seeing yourself as the servant, you're going to miss the whole point. The whole point of the story is that you're not the servant. The whole point of the story is, friends, you're the poor, the blind, the maimed, the lame. Oh, wait, are you Gentiles all here? You're not even them. You're the ones out in the highways and the hedges. You're the ones who Jesus came to earth as the servant of God to go outside the camp, outside the city, and pursue you and compel you to come in that the gracious house of God's kingdom would be filled. You are the one on the outside with no claim on the covenants of promise who by the grace of God and nothing else have been invited to the feast. Friends, we cannot look at this parable and see us doing the busy work. We look at this story and we see him doing all of the busy work. As Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up, I will draw I will draw all men to me. I love what Jesus says in John chapter 14. He says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. He says, them I must bring. And praise God that if you are in Christ today, you were the ones of whom Jesus brought in 
holding your hand, if it will, saying, believe me, you're invited in too. Believe me, your sins aren't too dark. Believe me, my blood is sufficient to wash away your sin. Believe me, in me, God loves you like a father. Believe me, I am strong enough to hold you for eternity. Believe me, you are invited. And that's how you and I can enter the kingdom of God. You know, friends, this story is all about you and I out in the highways and hedges. As Ephesians 2 says, we are strangers to the covenants of promise. We're without God in the world. But God, who is rich in mercy, is the one who has invited us in to the kingdom. What's only remaining for us is to accept the invitation. Let me get very direct for just one moment, if I might, if you'll allow me. I want us to see clearly here that if we think only we're the servants out in the highways and hedges, we might be like the Pharisees and we might miss the invitation altogether. I'm already in. Why are you in? Well, I'm in because I grew up going to church. I grew up learning about the things of God. My parents were Christians. I even got baptized. I, I'm already in. Friend, beware. Beware lest, lest our immediate reactions, well, blessed are those who, who, who eat meat in the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who have a seat around the table. And Jesus looks at you and says, are you? Have you accepted the invitation? Or, or are you making excuses? You say, what does that mean? Friend, what did these Pharisees miss? Their treasure was not in Jesus Christ. They didn't value Him. They didn't value the invitation. They didn't value the kingdom of God. Their heart was set on other things. And young people and children who have grown up in this church, I just warn you tonight, do not think that you certainly have a place at the kingdom of God just because you've grown up in a Christian home, just because you know the right words to say, just because you know the right songs to sing, just because you're very active in a ministry here. Do not believe that that automatically qualifies you. It does not. The only path into the kingdom are for those who say, God, I am the poor and the maimed and the blind and the lame. I am the ones out in the highways and the hedges. I don't have any claim on your grace and favor. But in Christ, I've been invited. And by His grace, I accept. Have you accepted this evening? Through no goodness of your own, have you accepted the invitation of God that Jesus came to earth to give you? I pray that you have. But secondly, there's another reason we have to know who we are in this story. It's for this reason. It's because there is a way to apply this parable where you're with Jesus shoulder to shoulder going out into the streets and lanes of the city. There is a way to apply rightly this parable to be us with him out in the highways and the hedges. But do you know what's going to be required for you to be effective out there? Inviting people into the kingdom of God, seeking by the Holy Spirit of God to see them drawn in. The only way to be effective is to realize that you were out there with them. That you were just as poor. That you were just as blind spiritually. You were just as lame. You were just as disabled spiritually as they are, unable to enter the kingdom until you saw the invitation and were compelled to come in. It's only when we come to the world 
not with those who are standing up behind a pulpit, looking down at them and, and wagging our finger and saying, maybe you'll get it someday. Maybe you'll figure it out like I figured it out. That's going to be no way to make a difference for the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is advanced by those who recognize their own spiritual poverty, their own grace of God that has been revealed and poured out immeasurably to them and go out in that spirit to seek to bring others to accept the same invitation that you have accepted. Several years ago, Tabitha and I went on an anniversary trip to Bayfield, Wisconsin. We went to see the sea caves that were there. And we didn't go by sea. We went by land. And we cut through this little forest path and walked several miles to get to these absolutely breathtaking sea caves that were there. And I'll never forget, we were walking there, and there was someone coming back. There were a few people coming back from the sea caves. And you know what they told us? We'd already been walking for, I think, well over a mile at that point. And they said, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And that was a little discouraging. We'd already been walking for a long time. We're like, okay, well, I guess let's just keep on going. And we kept on going. We kept on going. And we saw something that looked kind of cool, but it wasn't really that worth it. And we just decided to keep on going. And then we got there. And our mouths just dropped. Ben and Ingrid can probably testify, if you've never seen the sea caves in the Apostle Islands in, uh, outside Bayfield, it's absolutely stunning absolutely breathtaking to see these formations that have been carved out of the soft rock there. And we just kept on going, and it was like it got more magnificent and more beautiful and more overwhelming. And do you know what we realized? We said, there's no way on earth that guy saw this. There is not a chance. Do you know what he did? He got just far enough, and he turned around, and he left, and he missed the whole thing. Do you want to guess what Tabitha and I did on the way back? Almost everyone, it seemed like we passed. Do you know what we said? Keep going. It's worth it. It's absolutely amazing. Don't give up. It's, yeah, keep on going. It's a little ways longer, but it's worth it. And you know who Christians are? Christians are the ones who were out in the gutter. They were out in the highways and hedges. And they've accepted the invitation into the kingdom. And they've realized their treasure in life and in death is Jesus Christ and in what he's done for them. And then do you know what they do? They go into the streets and lanes of the city. And they go into the highways and hedges, not to wag their finger at people, but to say, accept the invitation. It's worth it. I promise. Have you accepted the invitation? Is Christ your treasure? And are you going out into the highways and hedges this week to let people know you should too?